in Web3, we can do something that we've never been able to do before. And it's so simple. It's decide what to be and go be it. There is no one to tell you what kind of history, education, training or background you have to have. The best ideas can win in Web3, not just the biggest marketing budgets. A bad bitch takes charge of her body, her boundaries and her bank account. Welcome back. Today, I'm here with Michelle Reeves. She is the co-founder and CEO of Mavion NFT, the first of its kind fashion NFT to connect physical fashion and utility with digital assets to uplift independent designers around the world. Michelle has been investing in crypto since 2016. She's built a community called wagme.nft to educate people on all things NFTs. She's been featured on Forbes, CNBC, LA Times, and more. And she is a serial entrepreneur and bad bitch empire builder. Michelle, welcome to the Bad Bitch Empire. Ah, Lisa, thank you for having me here. I'm so happy to be a fellow bad bitch. (laughs) Well, I'm so excited to dig into your background because you have started out in sports entertainment, you're in fashion, you've done Web 2, Web 3, now NFTs. So take us back first and foremost. I wanna know who you were and how you've really risen up to build so many empires across so many industries. I'd say the number one rule for me was a a constant curiosity. You know, I'm from Australia originally, a pretty small town, and was just always curious and hungry to learn about what else is happening out there. And so uh, I came to New York City, of course, the place that you come when you want to discover and conquer everything of your dreams. And that's where I really kicked off my career in sports and entertainment. And you were early in sports entertainment. I know you've worked with some big names, but you saw ahead of the times and really fast-tracked social media in the space, right? Absolutely. Uh, Back in, gosh, it feels like a thousand years ago, but in 2007, there was this thing called Facebook and uh, social media was really starting to come into its own. And I remember going down to the Facebook headquarters in California and really trying to introduce and almost convince our clients, you know, Roger Federer, Heidi Klum, Kate Moss, about the need to have social media accounts where they could really connect directly to their audiences. And that was just such a new and foreign concept for them to really digest and understand how that could be relevant, let alone be the future. So how did you think about the future even back then? I assume that there was a lot of pushback and just like now when we're in the crypto web three space, a lot of people are like, I don't know if this is a scam. I don't know if it's going to last. And that's what it was like in social media. So how did you, especially when you were in the beginning of your career as a woman in a male-dominated industry, really get your voice heard? It took a long time. (laughs) Uh, It took patience, resilience, and the idea that having creators or talent be their own um, direct uh, connection was really difficult for 
business institutions to wrap their head around. You know, you've got these agencies and management teams who are really used to owning every part of the communication and every part of the strategy and therefore every part of the business chain. And so I think the fear came from losing control and not Mm. recognizing that this could actually open all these new revenue streams and opportunities for business growth. So I think just honestly, patience and resilience um, where they could start to see it take shape was where the breakthrough had to happen. And it was small breakthroughs. When you have these revolutions, as a woman in tech especially, it's never going to be this gigantic shift. It's going to be a small step forward that really changes people's minds to allow you to take the next step. So tell me about a specific incidence perhaps in your career that you can remember where it was really difficult to find your voice because I think a lot of women coming up, especially today, if you've got big ambitions and big dreams, you inevitably face a lot of pushback, especially if you're breaking barriers. So can you tell us about just a time in in your career where that happened? Oh, gosh, countless times, as I'm sure there are for every female in business, no matter what your industry is. There's one that definitely stood out for me and that was uh, where somebody who feels threatened, uh, they, an older gentleman, um, more senior in the company, definitely had every reason to empower others. You know, he had a real position of influence and, you know, in my eyes had made it. And yet here he was, I recognize in hindsight, feeling threatened by myself and two other women on my team. And so the first place that he went to was to the attack mode. What school did you go to? I've never heard of that little school. What ideas could you possibly have coming out of that little school? We're adults. Are we really still talking about schools, you know, from when we were teenagers, decisions that we had no control over, um, depending on where you grew up, which city, which country. Uh, So that I I think really hit home because I, I, now recognize for the first time that it's not going to be a rational argument when people tried to hold you back. It's very emotional. Mm. So he was actively diminishing you to feel bigger. Oh, absolutely. And in front of a large number of people and myself and the two other women really walked away disappointed that someone we admired could be so fragile and so awful at the same time. It's so unfortunate because that's an opportunity for someone to really uplift someone in their career and he chose the mode of defensiveness and and pushing you down it was and i think that was actually the best lesson because that's when i realized if you want to win win together it does not have to be this win-lose mentality and i think women especially already have this belief inherently that we know that it's not a win-loss it's a we can all rise together and actually when we do we rise higher Mm. So what happened after that? Did you find another mentor, supporter, or? I left that job. (laughs) Oh, amazing. (laughs) I said goodbye to that team. I left that job and continued forward to just follow my curiosity. And I actually moved from New York then over to California. And I pursued a number of passions, including sports and entertainment. But that's when I started my first company on my own a wine company. Ooh. So not a lot of people know this about me, but one of my passions and dreams when I was younger was to be a sommelier. Yes. <laughs> so oh, so good. I actually took uh, the wine certification up to level 
le- some level, like intermediate level. Um, but tell me what you did in wine. Uh, well, I saw that there was a really tired industry in need of innovation. Uh, so who better than me in my 20s to go and uh, forge ahead and create something new? Uh, so I created the world's first touch trademark. Uh, it was a leather label on a wine bottle. Uh, So I'd spent a number of years just learning on the sides. I basically went into San Francisco's oldest wine company and said, hey, could I be your intern? I'll work for free if you'll let me ask the dumb questions so I can just learn about this industry. So smart. (laughs) (laughs) And they did. And so, you know, I had my corporate job on weekends, on evenings, holidays. I was the oldest intern turning up and working, learning, meeting all these incredible people and sommeliers and wine masters. And what I realized was we talk about engaging the senses of wine, Uh, taste and smell and sight but what about touch the first thing you do Uh, so I created that leather label with this idea to really invoke a full experience and create a new conversation around wine uh, in the industry and as we know wine is also a very male-dominated industry so again you (laughs) as a as a young woman went in and said we're going to break some barriers here I'm going to think outside of the box and think about the sense of touch what was that experience? Like, take us back to the actual experience of really rising up and, and asserting your voice and creating that empire. It was fantastic. I think because I had the resilience built from the experience of sports mm. um, coming into wine, I, I definitely knew it was ahead of me. I knew that it was male dominated. Um, but I've also now got a few extra years of growth and learning um, and a vision. And I think there's a mm. difference when you're working in a space for someone else's vision versus when it's yours that hunger it doesn't allow it kind of it, it won't allow you to take no for an answer and so I really forged ahead and grew that company and I would do things that I would never do before so I don't know if you remember at the time Gary Vaynerchuk was also really breaking barriers in wine and I remember just one day thinking I need to just email Gary of course, I need to talk to Gary. And I did. I emailed him probably the bravest email. I just put it out there. And he replied back right away and said, come meet me in New Jersey and let's film for my wine library TV show. And I thought, wow, we really have power here. There are more innovators in the space that I may have realized. And that's where I started connecting to more of a mindset of people. Who are the people who are curious like me, who want to build because there's no guarantee, but because they're hungry to see what's possible. Mm. Do you remember what you wrote to Gary? Oh, gosh. (laughs) I actually feel like it was something along the lines of, I'll do anything to talk about wine with you in the email subject line, something to that effect. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so important just highlighting that to have that vision, and then to bravely just shoot an email out to someone who's a role model, right? And it's like not being afraid of rejection. And ultimately, that did land you uh, a spot with Gary and, and that mentor. And it was it was a great, I think that also gave that, you know, young, early startup phase that every female founder goes through, that just that extra wind, you know, behind to keep pushing and forging ahead. Mm-hmm. And I think he, obviously he has an infectious energy to create. So he's such an advocate for founders mm. that at that critical juncture of starting the company, it was just the the energy boost that, you know, I, I needed and thrived mm. on. Where do you think your motivation to build comes from? I, th- 
Ah, oh, great, great question. You know, I'm, I'm going to give my some credit to my family. You know, they're the invisible army. My parents just were so, I think, consistent in their push of go explore. Mm-hmm. They, they never prescribed in their pushing of you should do this or be that. It was what are you capable of? Go and see that out to, to, uh, you know, to its full extent and push yourself to find out if you're good at it, if you like it, if you want to be there. And if not, turn around and come back and go down the next path. So I think it really came from an upbringing um, of consistent curiosity, adventure making and pushing. Mm. Yeah, that's so important to have that sort of foundation. And did you ever feel like you weren't enough or experience the imposter syndrome as you were diving into some of these new industries? So I've I've definitely been asked the imposter syndrome question, and I don't think I've ever felt that. But your first part of were, you know, do you feel like you're enough? Absolutely. That's probably the the kryptonite for me as a mom, as mm. a founder, as a CEO. You know, you when you're wearing so many hats and trying to be a lot of different volumes simultaneously, um, that's probably the, the question that I'm asking myself more often. Mm. Yeah. I mean, so on to this side of you as a mom, as a you know, woman who's built a family and an empire and is doing it all simultaneously. How did you really, you know, think about it going in? Because I think a lot of women, myself included, there's this, there's a challenge for me personally of thinking about how am I going to build my empire and be able to build a family? And, you know, as women, we do have that additional just juggling and guilt and shame that often comes with not being good enough. First of all, I'm going to say women are the most fantastic risk takers on the planet. Um, we are usually the ones who, while we're studying, are holding down one, if not multiple jobs. We are the ones who get given the least amount of capital to build our businesses. Mm-hmm. And we are often the ones who are the primary caregiver for our children or another family member. Despite that, and we're doing all that, we still then berate ourselves for not being enough and for having that guilt trip of uh, not being there to do everything. There is no easy answer. I think that what happened for me was a realization that I've got two little babies at home. Uh, They love their parents. Their parents love them. You know, my husband and I are providing as best we can and he's traveling a lot for work and they love him just as much as they love me. So With that recognition and with a really strong team member, my husband by my side, we just agreed that we could both fulfill our career goals and support each other and our kids are going to be there to support right back. Um, So it's not about the quantity of time and the number of nights that I'm there. It's about the quality and how I show up when I can be present. I, I hate that I've missed, you know, three of my daughter's birthday birthday parties. Um, But what I do instead is create other meaningful moments. Like why is it only that we can celebrate a family get together on July 4th? For us, maybe one year it has to be July 8th. That's okay. July 8th then (laughs) is going to be the day. Yeah. So we just recreate the calendar based on our schedules and our needs and our family time can just be as rich. Mm, That's such a important point because 
I, I always say time is relative. You know, there's urgency to get certain projects done. Of course, there's timing when we're building businesses. But to your point, exactly. Sometimes July 4th could be July 8th. Yes. <laughs> and, and as long as you are there and you do show up, I think showing up at the end of the day and, and having uh, that time where you can be the best version of yourself for someone else, that's really what is important at the end of the day. Exactly. And how do you think about showing up when you do, you know, like what, what, what are the things that you say to yourself? What is the most authentic and most powerful version of Michelle? I think it's always about how you make somebody feel Mm -hmm. um, and how I can then feel in the process. I think women haven't been taught um, enough to understand their value when they walk in a room. I would challenge every person to articulate your true north. When you walk into any room, whether it's your kid's classroom or it's the conference room or it's with a group of girlfriends you haven't seen in two years, um, think about what it is you want to leave as the feeling mm. of being that friend, that leader, that peer or colleague and go be it. You know, I think that we have been almost taught to not want to take any credit for something. Oh, no, no, it's just this or I'm just that. Walk in there and know that you're an inspiration. Walk in there and know that you can uplift. Walk in there and know that you could be a great friend in so many different ways. Articulate that because if you do, you will subconsciously behave that way. You will speak that way and then you will be that person mm -hmm. that you know you want to be. Yeah. I talk about owning your wins and owning your worth all the time. And exactly to your point where we say, oh, it, it wasn't me. It was the team. It wasn't me. It was timing. It wasn't me. It was luck. It wasn't me. It was everything else. Yes. And I just happened to be there. And I think learning how to really own your victories, your track record, your wins, your superpowers in the way that even like things that I think a lot of times for me, it was if it wasn't tangible, it wasn't something that I could offer. It was only later that I realized that empathy is a superpower. Generosity is a superpower. Collaboration is a superpower. You know, connecting someone or mentoring and supporting someone with, with true space to listen to them. That's a superpower. Yes. I love that you say that because I think we have put this overemphasis on very alpha qualities that you have mm. to be super confident, an extrovert, a leader to have a superpower. Your superpower might be that you make others feel like they're the most important person in the world. Mm. That is a superpower. Listening, I gotta say that is probably <laughs> the most valuable quality somebody could have. And it's really hard to find mm. a genuinely good listener. So if you could be that person, that is a superpower. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. So I actually, a lot of people don't know this, but I grew up as an introvert and I've been introvert most of my life. I've, I've learned how to become extroverted because as an entrepreneur, if you don't learn how to sell and build and speak and just be out there networking, your business dies. But I think over the last couple of years, I've kind of come back into that introvert side of myself where I, I, I never realized that listening was a superpower because I was always wondering well, everyone else around, like they're, they're speaking, they're selling, and why can't I do that as well? Well, I taught myself how to do those things and now coming back to realizing that, yeah, creating space to, to listen is actually, to your point, something that, that is really rare. 
It is. And I think that we've also been faced as women with a unique challenge. So for men who are an introvert, I have definitely taken note of this in the traditional boardroom setting, that if a man has nothing to say, it's because, wow, he's got some big thoughts going on. And uh, he's definitely just sitting and watching as we all talk about it, but he's got like the winning strategy in mind. But if a woman has nothing to say, it's because she has nothing to say. And I think that double standard has held women back to, to really, I think, question if being an introvert was okay. Mm-hmm. And I really am hopeful that coming out of this two-year pandemic where work situations have changed and being remote has changed, that now merit can be placed where it's due because we don't have to all be in boardrooms together. You know, we can see and work differently. And I'm hopeful that it's giving a voice and a spotlight to women who are not just the extroverts, but also the great listeners, the keen, acute, perceptive thinkers Mm -hmm. um, who are still thriving and winning coming out of it. Yeah. I think observing, asking incisive questions, all of those, you know, just sometimes, sometimes I say just one incisive question can change the entire course of a business, a meeting, what have you. Yes. Yes. So tell me a little bit about your crypto journey. So how did you get into it? You know, that was the the I, the next industry. Yes. And you got in in 2016. Another, <laughs> I seem to just like love butting my head into walls. Uh, so out of wine and into tech um, and into the crypto bro dominated culture. So I personally got into crypto in 2016 uh, and definitely not a Bitcoin billionaire, uh, but enough where when you have skin in the game, you you care. And I would definitely implore anyone who's mildly curious, uh, you know, just to have that little piece of crypto, $100, $50, because it'll make you pay attention when the headlines come through. You'll want to read that first paragraph and then you'll read the second paragraph. So for the past five years, really building my own personal uh, network uh, of people, of insights into what was happening in crypto. Uh, Meanwhile, I had been building uh, our Web2 company, The Accessory Junkie, where we were uplifting independent designers from around the world to really spotlight incredible work from uh, small production, jewelry, accessories. Um, And what we recognized, I'd say in 2020, was that there were some great wins in Web2 to uplift these independent designers, but there were still two really big problems that Web2 couldn't address. Uh, Problem number one, IP. You know, thank you, Diet Prada. You are constantly blowing the lid on big brands who are taking advantage and legally, illegally copying ideas of independent designers. Um, And two, how do you scale scarcity? You know, if you have a designer who's making 50 of one earring, that's finite. Once those 50 earrings are sold, they've got to go and make something else. What we recognized in February, it was the last week of February, 2020, we were sitting at Techstars, uh, which was a tech uh, accelerator that we were a part of, talking about gaming. And gaming back then was really synonymous with Web3. Like, how do we create digital assets uh, and really think about augmented reality or filters that could take these 50 earrings but make millions of units uh, in digital skins or virtual fashion? Like, what does this look like? And in February of 2020, it was just too soon because the consumer wasn't there. We thought, okay, let's just put that on the table 
And when the time is right, we will have a conversation with the customers once this whole Web3 is less of this weird new space and more something that they are ready for. Flash forward, a pandemic comes and everyone's digital lives have propelled forward in ways that we could never predict. And last year, the talk of NFTs just did not stop. I mean, all of our news feeds were filled with NFT headlines and we realized now is the time. Hmm. So for those who are new to NFTs, could you tell us what exactly is an NFT and how do people really think about them and their utility? Absolutely. So, okay, NFT, <laughs> non-fungible token. Oh, makes total sense. Uh, no, let's start with the word fungible. Mm -hmm. What does fungible even mean? It was a word that no one said up until a year ago. Fungible are things like a dollar bill. If I give you, Lisa, a dollar bill and I have a dollar bill, we same. can mix it around, pick one out. It's the same. Uh, but non-fungible would be our cell phones. They're both cell phones, but the real value is only there for the true owner. I only want the information out of mine and I know that you only want the information out of yours. So that is non-fungible, they are non-transferable. But those are tangible examples. So a non-fungible token is anything that can be digitized. So I think it's really important to think about this because it's not just the JPEGs and the artwork that we're seeing, yes, they can be NFTs, but anything, a QR code, a QR code that unlocks access to a confirmation code to board a plane and go watch your favorite team play in Europe. Um, it could be a movie file, a song file, a JPEG. It could be a password that gives you access to an exclusive hotel that you can stay in all year. Uh, so it can be anything that is digital and ownable and that can go into an NFT. Got it. And so Mavion NFT, you guys have taken physical asset, which is fashion accessories from independent designers, and you've fused them with the digital asset, the NFT. So tell us about how that works. Break it down for us. Yes. We love to say that these are NFTs that transform real world lives. I love the metaverse, but we still live in the real world mm -hmm. every day. So for our NFTs, we have released 5,000 NFTs. Each one is unique and each one features a unique accessory. So it could be earrings, rings, bag, a headband, you name it. And with that NFT, you will be then given the physical piece. So if you mint an NFT and it's got a great big gold necklace, uh, you may be able to receive that actual necklace versus if I have a silver ring, which I'm wearing right now, uh, I could get the silver ring. What's really great about this is that solving of a problem of scaling scarcity. So I mentioned in Web 2, we can't scale scarcity. In Web 3, we can because that gold necklace or this silver ring, we can make AR filters, we can make gaming skins. And now for you, the NFT holder and the designer of that necklace, royalties are coming back into your wallet, actual currency going into your wallet where you now have a revenue stream from your NFT. Amazing. So for those of you who don't really understand even how the royalty structures work on NFTs, could you break that down for us in terms of how does the designer actually get 
paid? And then how do you as the NFT holder also get access to some of those royalties? Yes. So our independent designers, we have 16 of them from nine different countries. And they all make high, high quality, beautiful pieces, but in really small uh, quantities. Uh, so what happens is once these NFTs are launched, they all get traded on the secondary market called OpenSea. And it's kind of like Pokemon cards. Uh, so people are buying and selling and trading them amongst each other. And every time there is a trade, a percentage of that trade goes to those 16 designers as part of a royalty. And they will get that in perpetuity forever. Mm. And that is such a revolution because to your point, most of the time, if you're an artist, if you're a designer, you sell it once. And then if that gets sold again, again, you don't get any of that perpetual royalty, mm -hmm. any of that revenue. So that's something that is really powerful about the blockchain because you can code into the smart contract, which is really just the back end code to give certain percentages to different parties that are involved. Exactly. And that smart contract is there forever, which is great. And that is what is really life-changing for these designers because it's a revenue stream they would never normally have anywhere else. Yeah. So tell me about the necklace that you have on right now is, and how is that related to one of your NFTs? Absolutely. So this necklace is called the Jessie necklace. It's actually named after my stepdaughter. Uh, she is fabulous and fierce, just like this. <laughs> uh, so if you um, have one of our Mavion NFTs, with this necklace um, and you're holding it on the right time frame, you haven't sold it, you then will be able to get the physical piece. Uh, mm -hmm. It's made by an independent designer based out of Jaipur in India. Mm. And the really cool part then for our NFT holders is um, as we use things like this necklace or other earrings or bracelets in the NFT and create digital assets, like this could be in a game, and maybe in the game, mm -hmm. it has special powers, uh, it's doing all kinds of things and animations. You, the NFT holder, will now get royalties from every unit sold. Mm. Um, so it's almost like creating a, a mini retail empire from your NFT in your crypto wallet. Mm. So is it just the original holder of the NFT gets the jewelry or the accessory? Great question. It's not. Okay. So it's fashion. We all like different <laughs> things. So we didn't do it so that it's the original holder. What we're doing is we are announcing a calendar later this year where there is a total of 88 different accessories throughout the collection. And each one of those will have a different date. Mm. So if you're holding this necklace on, let's say it's September 2nd, then whoever is holding these in their wallets on September 2nd will receive the item. So mm. let's say you didn't have this in your NFT, but you want it, you now know that you've got to go make sure you can buy it on the secondary market and have it ready on it. the 2nd of September. Okay, that's super cool. Yeah. And for those who can't see and are just listening to this on podcasts, this what you're wearing is a it's this beautiful beaded navy blue and silver gold skull <laughs> crossbones that's Yay. flying it's just awesome bold bad bitch accessory it kind of is it feels yeah. like the ultimate bad bitch accessory it does in a very friendly bad bitch way yes <laughs> uh any other designers that you really want to highlight that have some incredible stories that are part of the oh, collection just so I, i'm impressed by every single one of them um 100 of the 16 designers are women people of color or lgbt um this is 
like really a revolution for them to be a part of Web3. A couple I'm going to call out, there's a husband and wife team. Um, They are based between uh, India and New York City. They were formerly the couturiers for Alexander McQueen. Mm. And their, gosh, craftsmanship is out of this world, you know. And these are pieces you just wouldn't find you know, in every store. So when you see it, you really kind of recognize that exquisite quality. Uh, we have a couple of extraordinary designers from Colombia and Brazil, mm. just really um, art deco, futuristic looking pieces. I promise you, if you see somebody wearing it down the street, you're going to know that that's a fellow Mavion. And, you know, in hearing about their own personal stories, you know, they're doing a lot to support other women in their communities mm-hmm. and a lot of LGBT um, communities rely on them for income, for local initiatives. They give their artists a voice where they normally wouldn't. So, you know, I think we take a lot of things for granted um, in big business here, but these are designers where every single piece is revenue that changes their daily lives. I just think that's so incredible. First of all, props to you for putting this mission together and aligning it with Web3. But I just find that every Web3 woman's project that I've supported, I mean, just across the board, always mission-oriented. It's always a give-back component. It's always about collaboration. And I think that one of the superpowers we have as women is just we care Yes. We care about our community. We care about our teammates. We care about future generations as well as past generations and present gen. It's just we we care about the impact that we have on our environment and the ripple effect that that can create. I totally agree. I don't see this as much with male-led NFTs, but for female, uh, it's really an inherent part of the model. You know, we're really creating these full 360 business models where the founding team can win, the NFT holder can win, and a third-party organization or cause or give back is not just a one-time initiative. It's a full part of how the model works that will win as well. Amazing. And what does Mavion mean? Ah, great question. (laughs) So uh, we loved these terms, Maven and Maverick. You know, Mm -hmm. as we built the Accessory Junkie and traveled around, we really recognized that in all of these designers. Um, It's a gender neutral term that really creates uh, or stands for the mindset of someone who is willing to go where no one has gone before. Pioneer a path forward that is unique to yourself. So we kind of put Maverick and Maven on the table. And then we thought about, you know, these pieces, these pieces are like treasures from all over the world. And wouldn't it be incredible if we could just have our own plane? I mean, I think everyone wants their own plane to go where they want to go, see who they want to see, enjoy cultures at any given moment. And so the word or the translation for my plane in French is mon avion. Mm. And so with Maverick, Maven and mon avion, Mavion was was born. Amazing. That's fly into the sky as <laughs> mavericks and <laughs> yes um yes so as we think about all the bad bitches who are listening what is one piece of advice that you would want to leave with women as they think about building their empires or breaking barriers and how to really command their worth as they 
go into building their dream. Absolutely. The barriers to entry have never been lower. So this is our time. And there's two things that I would implore to any female uh, considering her next steps forward. One, uh, you don't need to have all this capital to enter. You know, that's really extraordinary. Instead, I think women have a really strong muscle when it comes to community building. And in NFTs, community counts. If you don't have community, you have nothing. So really flex your muscle on how you build your community and move forward. The second thing is in Web3, we can do something that we've never been able to do before. And it's so simple. It's decide what to be and go be it. There is no one to tell you what kind of history, education, training, or background you have to have. The best ideas can win in Web3, not just the biggest marketing budgets. Amazing, and I couldn't agree more. Final question for you. What does it mean to you, Michelle, to be a bad bitch? It means everything. <laughs> it means how I'm gonna raise my daughter and my stepdaughter. It means how I'm gonna raise my son, you know, to really recognize what bad bitches are capable of and what they've been missing out on for all these years until they recognize that they should not only let us in the room, but seat us at the head of the goddamn table. Hell fucking yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Michelle, for sharing your wisdom with us. And we are so, so grateful to have you as part of the Bad Bitch Empire. Thank you. Happy to be one. If you enjoyed this episode, take a screenshot, tag me at Lisa Carmen Wang, and make sure you check out thebadbitchempire.com for events, courses, crypto, and other cool shit. Thanks for tuning in to The Bad Bitch Empire.